Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's been a dark year for us here in Ontario, and we're all wondering, where is the political leadership? How can we recover from the Ford government's COVID-19 government disasters? We'll discuss that. And as students across Ontario continue online learning, the government has now released plans to give students that option to take their courses remotely for the entire 2021 school year. Experts have already relayed their concerns about this, but we're going to talk about that. And the number of Canadians experiencing mental health issues continues to rise, but according to an Ipsos survey, we're more willing to talk about it these days. Jennifer McLeod-Macy, the VP of Public Affairs at Ipsos, joins us with all those details. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There's a lot of concerns here about this recovery plan and about what's going to happen with Ontario uh, because what we are now and where we are right now is going to have a huge impact on what we're going to be like in the next couple of months and years. And uh, there's a lot of concern about, well, the way we've been governed. And we've talked about a lot of those aspects on the program over the last little while. Uh, and one of our guests a couple of weeks ago was Justin Ling, who, of course, is a freelance journalist who writes for McLean's Magazine, uh, says that the Ford government in particular has been ignoring the advice of Science Advisory Table, and that's bothersome to most of us. The thing is that the Ford government has a panel of experts that it itself tapped to be an independent source for advice, really an independent body that will write up the playbook on exactly what you ought to do and what needs to be done. And I don't think anyone ever anticipated that you know, that panel's advice is called the science table. I'm not sure anyone ever anticipated we'd follow their advice to the T. But Doug Ford has taken that advice and basically shredded it and done exactly the opposite of what they're telling him. And therein lies, well, I was going to say the problem. It's one of the problems. There's a great piece in the in the conversation uh, that is written by our next guest uh, that talks about our confidence in government and the impact that's going to have on this whole province going forward. Mark Winfield is a professor of environmental studies at York University and the author of this piece, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Professor, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Oh, good morning. Thank you for having me. You uh, hit the nail on the head here. You're, you're reflecting an awful lot of the concerns I've heard from many people, uh, experts, ordinary citizens, and everything else about what's gone on in the last 14 or 15 months. And, and you know, I'm concerned about how we're going to be going forward on this and, and you know, the leadership that we're getting on this. And, and how difficult is it going to be for us to pull ourselves out of this when a lot of us here in Ontario just don't have faith in this government? Well, I think I think it makes it very, very difficult. Um, it makes, I mean, the, you know, the government's credibility in terms of the messages that it sends itself has, has, I think, been shaken very badly, uh, for a variety of reasons, including the extent to which they, they seem not to pay very much attention to what the science advisory table tells them. Uh, they seem to pay attention to certain other voices. And I think that's really eroded people's confidence in anything they hear from the province. I've, I've heard people sort of say, well, they kind of, kind of feel like we're on our own to sort of save, our, save ourselves, um, as opposed to relying on the province to deliver. And, and then there have been, of course, multiple examples of that that we can probably go through in terms of, of where things seem to have fallen apart. But, but those are all contributory, aren't they, to, to the, I guess, the, the malaise that we're feeling right now. I mean, you know, these are troubling times. And Many of us, I think it's probably the most uh, troublesome crisis we're going to face in our lifetime, a medical crisis like this, which is basically life and death. We pretty much need to have faith in government to try to get us through these sorts of situations, don't we? Well, this is this is fairly fundamental in terms of uh, what we think governments exist to do, uh, is precisely to be able to deal with this kind of crisis. They're the one institution we have as a society that's able, in theory, to marshal the resources uh, 
that are needed to organize them to coordinate them i mean say this is this is about as fundamental as you can get in terms of of what we expect governments to do for us is is to precisely manage this kind of of fundamental crisis i mean as it is we've lost 8000 people it's the worst public health crisis in a century really have to go back to the spanish flu uh to to have anything on the scale of what we've dealt with in this province and, and i guess one of the reasons that we're feeling especially bad about this and frustrated is we are hearing this medical advice i mean this is not happening i mean a hundred years ago you're absolutely right there was some concern but we didn't have the communication that we do now vis-a-vis uh, -vis social media etc in other words i can hear dr judy i've had dr uni on the program a number of times and, and dr bogosh and other people from the science table that said that's not what we asked that's not what we recommended so yeah. we're, we're getting that other side of the story and, and which is only i guess underscoring the, the question we're all asking here is then why isn't the government listening to it? These are the experts. Well, this this is the question. Is it's sort of it is a different environment where it has. Uh, I mean, to their credit, we've had people who are um, the subject matter experts on public health, epidemiology, um, sort of speaking very directly. And and indeed, we're also hearing a lot from frontline. Uh, physicians at the ER and ICU level and nurses sort of describing the situation that we're encountering. This this is new, uh, but it again it 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 it's it's very important that it happens because again it 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 emphasizes though uh, that we we're hearing this and we know that different advice is being given. But as you say, it also then further undermines our confidence in the province and what it says because it, it becomes so apparent. Uh, what the extent of the gap between what the experts are telling the government it needs to do and what the government is actually doing um, really becomes quite sh quite quite shocking. And as you mentioned in the piece, uh, in the conversation, I, I don't think we expect governments to be perfect all the time, and they're not always going to get it right. But and, and nor do we want them to grovel and say, "Gee, we really screwed up." But at least listen to people who do have more expertise in it than they do, uh, and that doesn't seem to be the case here. No, well, this this seems to be part of the problem, and and I think many people have wondered, well, who is the government listening to? Um, because there's there's no shortage. You know, say the the we know the science advice has been conveyed, and that indeed, um, sadly, it's in some ways it's it's been very accurate that the uh, modelers basically forecast the second and third waves pretty accurately. And we're pretty clear about what was going to happen if if measures weren't taken, um, and yet uh, we we seem to not get responses from the government. And again, on the long-term care issue, we've now had two very detailed reports: uh, one from the Auditor General and the other from the Commission, sort of laying out what needs to happen in the long-term care sector. And again, we're, you know, what we're getting is, is, is at best a, a waffle and a duck from the government about uh, is, is it going to act on all of this, uh, despite your know, very, very thorough processes behind both of those exercises, lots of expertise brought to bear on the questions. And yet, you know, the government, government is yet to commit to, to saying, yeah, we're going, we're going to do this. 
I know there are some people that are going to say, well, the fault is, lies totally with the federal government, and, and that I'm not going to try to change those people's minds. There's, there's culpability here for everybody. We understand that. But I, it's not lost on me, though, Professor, and, and I, I think you're hinting at this in the piece, uh, in the conversation, is the provinces that have been hit the worst by this are the ones that right now are looking at their leadership, including Ontario and Alberta, uh, among the two highest, I guess, and yep. saying, you know, do you guys have your act together? I mean, we, we're counting on you right now, and the, the numbers keep going up the crisis in our hospitals is, is getting worse almost by the day right now and we're looking at other jurisdictions that seem to be handling it i mean nobody's really mastered this except for maybe new zealand but they're handling it and we aren't well this seems to be and and as, as i said in the and i've i've written about this more generally around governance style i mean part of it is is that you're you're dealing with governments um that at times, and you know, the Kenny government and the Ford government are probably the most prominent examples in in Canada at the moment. Um, whose whose idea of what government should do, I think, is a little bit shaky, um, and that that part of it is is that the the notion that the government has a positive role to play. I mean, Mr. Ford was, came into office. The government's job is to cut red tape, cut taxes, and cut hydro rates. So the idea of government playing a relatively interventionist positive role, which is what it has to do in response to a crisis like this, it has to be proactive, it has to organize things, it has to do things, um, it just doesn't seem to be a role that they're very comfortable with in terms of what they should be doing. And then you, you so there's no, there's, no, there's no underlying notion of well, what should the province do uh, the governing style, as I say in the article, it, it's almost sort of seat of the pants. I've, I've compared it in some ways in Ontario to running the province the way you might run a municipal councillor's office, where you just kind of re- respond to what comes through the door. And um, the pandemic, other events as well, but COVID-19 more than anything else has, has just laid bare uh, the inadequacy of that kind of an approach to governance that, that you have to be looking forward you have to be relying on expert advice. People were telling the government, you know, this this was coming, and and not just the first the first wave. Maybe there's a little bit of uncertainty, but after that, the, the modeling was very clear, and and yet we're not getting responses until until we're deep in a crisis, and that's just it. Just doesn't work as a governance model. There's no no other way to put it really that we we need governments to play these roles around these kinds of threats to society and public health and they have to have the infrastructure and the expertise to to for to identify these kinds of threats before they become a crisis but they also have to be open to hearing that advice and and open to acting on it and part of the problem here is is these are governments whose whose instincts seem to be not to do that to wait until we're in a crisis before they respond and I'm glad you gave it that context. And you know, three years ago when this government got elected, uh, you know, rightly or wrong, I don't care who people voted for. And, and I, it's a conservative government, I get that, but it could have been a liberal NDP. It doesn't matter who's in charge. Uh, they ran on their mantra. In other words, you know, it, as you mentioned, cut taxes, reduce hydro rates, stuff that's uh, going to appeal to a, a certain percentage. You know, yeah, we we need less government. We want our taxes lower. We we say that almost every election, and and so we elected them. Then all of a sudden, you know, everything went to hell in a handcart here, especially during this pandemic and an, an, 
emergency crisis. And, and I guess the frustration I'm feeling, and I'm, I'm hearing from my listeners, and I think you talk about it in the piece, is this government didn't have the ability to pivot. In other words, they were stuck with, with, with their mantra and said, this is what we believe in. All of a sudden, a different set of circumstances happened, and they didn't know how to handle it. And they still, to this day, seem uncomfortable in how they're handling it. Well, I, th- I think that's very much, as I say, it's very much the case. I mean, this, this, this falls outside of their conception of what government should do. Yeah. I mean, it, it requires, as I say, it requires a fairly major intervention on the part of the state of government uh, to manage a crisis. And as I say, you know, the state is the only in- institution we have in our society that, that can deal with this kind of thing. I mean, it's the only entity that can organize the resources and coordinate them. And yet there's, there's this profound, uh, you know, it's counter-instinctual to the orientation of, of this government, President Kenny's government as well, the President's most extreme examples, that, that government would intervene in this kind of way, would have to be very active and proactive, you know, that they'd have to, to move to head off problems in fairly major ways before the problem reaches the kind of crisis that we're hearing about in the ICUs uh, in the past few weeks. And as I say, it's just, it just almost beyond their conception of their role as a government to do that. And I think that's been part of the, I think I've argued in other places, this is part of the problem, is that, that their, their sense of what they should do, is what, what this demands, falls outside of their sense or understanding of what they're supposed to do as a government. You raise an interesting theory here. I know I've got a couple of minutes left. I wanted to delve into this, too. You talk about how do you get out of this and, and how do you restore you know, confidence in the government. And you bring up the idea of a coalition government. And as I was reading this, of course, I, you, Martin harkens back to, to Churchill in the 1940s, uh, you know, when he took over in the U.K. Uh, and that was a fractured country, too. You know, should we do this or the war? Should we do that? There were Neville Chamberlain fans. And Churchill, as you point out, actually formed a coalition government. He brought in people from the other parties to, to be part of the cabinet and to be part of his wartime advisory board. So he regretted it a bunch of times as he did it, but he looked at that as, okay, this is a conciliatory move to try to get the country together. Uh, do you see something like that happening? I think I think it's an interesting possibility. I mean, I, I made the point in the article. I mean, it would potentially restore some confidence in the province. Uh, there is some depth and experience in the NDP and Liberal caucus, and even Mr. Schreiner, the Green leader, I think could bring a voice of reason and moderation to the cabinet table, um, you know, it would deepen the bench strength at least because, you know, if Mr. Ford resigned, Ms. Fullerton resigned, I mean, there's, there's no depth, depth on the government side. I don't think an election helps us at all in this situation, and indeed in the middle of the crisis, it was just a further distraction. Whether, in, it's a, and we do have the successful example, the, 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 the wartime coalition in the U.K. being the most, most prominent, um, whether in the current political environment that will happen, I find it hard to imagine, given the level of toxicity that seems to now exist between the government and the opposition. I mean, I think the exchange between uh, the long-term care minister and the leader of the opposition yesterday in the legislature was, was quite shocking, on, on mm-hmm. the minister's part, to be very clear. Um, so whether we could get there, I, I don't know. Um, the other thing that we've raised, I raised in the article, was also around the role of the chief medical officer of health and whether, um, you know, perhaps we're not going to get to a coalition government, but at least could we have someone who is more able, more active, more prepared to stand up at the political level 
um, than Dr. Williams. We, you know, it needs to be somebody who's more in tune with the science table and more willing to stand up to the government and say, look, this is what we need to do. I got a minute left, and I want, I'm glad you brought that up because I want you to expand on that for just a second because one of the other groups that you do uh, focus on in the piece is the Ontario Medical Association, uh, and, and not the individual doctors because there have been some voices right from the beginning yeah. that, have, that have been very vocal about this, but they as an association, uh, you're suggesting, should have spoken up a lot louder and a lot sooner in this. I was, I, as I began to reflect on this, it did begin to strike me that the, the silence from the OMA with one or two exceptions, has really been quite striking. As you say, it's been sort of left to individual doctors in ERs and ICUs to to do the talking or uh, the local medical officers of health on whom the province is more or less left to fend for themselves. And, you know, in the past, the OMA has been a very, very powerful voice around public health, around Smoking anti-smoking campaigns. They were very involved in the drinking water safety issues around Walkerton. They were instrumental in the phase out of coal because of the health impacts of air pollution. And you know, I know, particularly when I was involved in the Walkerton inquiry, they were they were they were there to back up the medical officers of health very strongly in terms of their role. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been quite striking to not have that voice in this conversation in the biggest public health crisis the province has faced in a, in a century. I think it would have been very helpful for them to be providing some consistent voice and also to provide political backing to people like Dr. Lowe and Dr. Davila in Toronto and Peel, who are the ones who are having to take some of the really hard decisions because the province isn't doing it. So it was, it was an observation that, that, that that's yet another sort of gap that has emerged, that we didn't have that voice in the process to back up uh, what was being said from uh, the experts in public health and epidemiology, and also the frontline physicians and medical officers of health who are who are really dealing with this on a day-to-day basis. You can go to theconversation.com to see the uh, the entire op-ed piece uh, from uh, uh, Professor Winfield. Uh, Professor, uh, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for the contribution of the piece, and I really appreciate you joining us today. Great. Well, thank you very much. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. School days these days are uh, a little crazy, obviously, because of lockdowns and shutdowns, and uh, we don't even know if a kid's going to go back to school before the end of the school year in June. But yesterday, Education Minister Stephen Lecce was front and center once again. Uh, the provincial government says students will have the option to take all of their courses online for the entire school year starting in September. Uh, the minister uh, confirmed plans as he announced more than $2 billion has been set aside for what he calls pandemic planning and education uh, for the upcoming year. Global's Dave Woodard has more details. As part of the spending, $20 million will go to re-engage students in school, but at the same time, the province is making plans to continue virtual learning and cohorting into next year. The province is looking to spend $40 million over the next two years to assist with connectivity to enhance remote learning, as well as spending close to $30 million on enhanced operating costs, which include things like upgraded ventilation systems. The document doesn't make clear whether students will be expected to be in class in the fall or when they may be heading back. School boards are also expected to pay for some of the supports that were put in place last year, like public health nurses and more PPE, for the first half of 2021-22. And the province says it will confirm for the second half, pending vaccine distribution and what public health advises at that time. Dave Woodard, Global News.
So is this actually the best for students to, to have that option? Now, not everybody's going to do it, but uh, boy, we're certainly hearing some mixed signals and a lot of concerns about the way things are right now. Joining us to talk about this is Don Dankel. Don is the chair of the Hamilton Whitworth District School Board and uh, always a welcome guest on the program. Don, thanks for the time. Good to have you back with us again today. Good morning, Bill. It's nice to be with you this morning. Uh, right off the top, what's your reaction to what the minister offered yesterday? Well, I have to say this has been a good news week for public education because we've learned not only a positive funding announcement has been released, we've received information that's going to be key for us to start planning for the fall, but we've also heard that public education workers um, will be eligible to start their vaccinations tomorrow, and that's going to apply to the majority of education workers. So um, it's actually a, a series of, of good news announcements for education. Yeah, there's a bit of a qualifier to that. I mean, if I understood the minister properly yesterday, it's uh, only people that are actually working in those environments. I mean, if you're a teacher right now and you're not in the classroom, are you still eligible? Because there seemed to be a, uh, some confusion about that yesterday. Uh, that's a great question. It's anyone who would be working in a classroom. So although we are in remote at the moment, this would be all of our educators who would be working in person if we hadn't made that shift to remote. Um, so it is the majority of our education workers, not just those who are currently working in schools with their special education students. Well, and as so many other policies, uh, you know, I, I guess better late than never. I mean, something that probably should have happened months ago, but at least that's going to be happening going forward on that. What, talk to me about, about your feeling about the, the online learning and, and students who could offer to do this on a full-time basis. And I know, you know, I think we've had this discussion in the past, Don, there are some students because of, uh, you know, their own particular circumstance who may have to do that. Uh, you know, there could be, you know, health issues, a number of different things uh, that, that may factor into something like this. But for a student or a family to simply opt and say, I, I'm not going to put my son or daughter in the classroom anymore, we're going to do this all virtually. Uh, how would you feel about that? Is, is that a good idea? Is it good for the student? Well, there's two pieces to this debate. So one is, are we offering remote learning in the fall while we're still in a pandemic and we don't quite know what the numbers are going to look like? So the, the ministry has said, yes, we will do that. That's not necessarily a permanent option, but there is also uh, some discussion and some consultation, although our board has not been directly consulted, on a permanent option where parents or families could choose to permanently be in, in online learning. And so we certainly have concerns about a permanent option. Uh, we certainly are, we are requesting that the ministry actually do a more comprehensive consultation before making any decision about permanent online learning. And there's a number of reasons for that. When we look at what the education system does to support students, it's not just about handing in assignments or delivering content. It's about supporting the whole child. And it's through their development, um, through childhood, through youth. It's about social socialization. It's about connections. It's about developing, um, you know, opportunities for, for different activities beyond just sitting and doing your schoolwork. It's about recess. It's about gym. It's about all of the other activities that happen at school. And when you're in online learning, uh, there is some isolation from your peer group. There is uh, an inability for many families to be able to provide supports for that physical activity. So there's a number of concerns um, that we certainly do have. We, we would want to make sure that we're consulted if there is going to be a shift and there is going to be that offered permanently. But for the fall, it does make sense during the pandemic. We know some families have situations where uh, the, the risk is higher for their family uh, if their child is going to school. But we don't even know what circumstances uh, we are going to be in, let alone the schools are going to be in come September, vis-a-vis -vis vaccination, uh, where the pandemic is going to be, what the numbers are going to be like. Uh, is, is, is this a, a little premature to actually make a commitment like this? 
Well, again, I think if we're talking about remote learning being available for next year, because we don't know those things, because we don't know when vaccines might be available to our, our children and youth, um, that that's, that's a fair assumption at this point, and I think planning for that makes a lot of sense. Again, if we're talking about permanently offering that, that needs to be a different discussion, and I think we need to hold off on that decision. We need to learn from the, the remote experience that's happened so far, and we need to be looking to our medical experts who understand child and youth development before we start committing to that. I, I mean, credit where it's due. I mean, you know, here, here they are in early May talking about what may happen in September, which is a far cry from what they did, you know, the beginning of last year. When it was the last week of August when they told the boards what was going to happen in you know, two weeks from then. Uh, but the consultation aspect of this I find interesting, though, Don. Uh, do you f I feel confident that if they decide to, to go down this road that there will be consultation beforehand? That, that hasn't been their practice in the past. That's a great question, Bill. Uh, I can say that boards and chairs of boards have been asking the minister directly to commit to consultation, uh, to commit to a broader, transparent public consultation on it. Uh, we have not heard a firm commitment to that end. And uh, while I appreciate that, that there's a public school board association that has been consulted in different groups have been, it's been done uh, with a bit of a gag order where uh, certain details have not been able to be shared publicly. We know that many of those have been leaked in the public through the media, but uh, we really believe that our board, our community deserves the opportunity to consult on this. Uh, it impacts where funding is being spent, which can impact then the experience for students in the classroom in our physical schools. Um, so we really feel that uh, if we're going to make a shift in public education, that should be part of a broader community discussion and consultation. I'm sure you've seen this story. There have been so many studies done about uh, the impact this has had on students over the last little while, the remote learning, that is. Uh, and, and one that uh, just released yesterday in the Globe and Mail, uh, educators are worried about the absences of COVID-19 challenges. In other words, students have been known to uh, log on to the class and then just simply turn off their, 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 their computer, essentially. So they are marked. it's like going to the school and being marked president and then slipping out the back of the classroom. Uh, and they're very concerned about that and the impact it's having. Uh, and, and this is what they say is a growing concern right across the province. Have you heard any of those concerns with uh, the, relating to the Hamilton area? Absolutely. And I, I think as any parent would tell you, um, check-ins on your children if they're working online is important because you never know when they're actually engaging online in their class or if, like you say, they've turned it on and gone back to sleep in the morning if you're talking about many of our teens. Um, that is an absolute concern and I know that our, our teachers and educators are doing everything they can to be engaging um, students to make sure that they're participating. We, we count often on students handing in work to, to see that they're they're engaging in their learning. Um, we do have a lot of supports in our system. We have 31 social workers in our board that are supporting students, in particular students who have not been attending classes that have disengaged. Um, and it's so important that we're meeting families and students where they are right now because we know that families and students are struggling. There's heightened worry. There's heightened anxiety. A lot of uh, students in particular are experiencing low mood, and part of that is from the isolation, that the fact that they don't have that physical interaction with their peers, and if they don't have a strong peer group that they can access online right now, they may be isolated from, from any and all friends. And so that, that really has some significant impacts, and we have our staff and our social workers really trying to connect with those students to help them stay engaged for the rest of the school year, not knowing if we're going to be back in person at all or if this is going to continue in remote. 
So how do you track that, and how do you how do you stay in touch? How do you connect with those people then? Uh, that's a great question, and then part of the tracking is, of course, our attendance reports where the student logs in, and you can see they're there. Um, it's so important that our educators are using techniques that prompt the students to do something in a class and do some active learning post in the chat. It's often very difficult to get students to turn cameras on or their, their um, microphones on online. And I think that's true you'll see for adults too when they're engaging in sessions. So different ways to check in and I think again looking to support families and understanding what is the work that is due. And so I know a lot of our elementary teachers are, are often informing parents, here's the work that we're doing this week. Can you check in on your child? And sort of doing this in a collaborative way, um, knowing that if, if you can't be in front of a student, you can't see that whole student in front of you, you can reach out to uh, parents and families to, to make sure that there are check-ins. Um, but our social workers do reach out to families where we are not seeing engagement, we're not seeing work handed in, uh, or we're not seeing attendance at all, and um, try to, to work on what are some strategies to get the student to engage as much as they're able. Um, and, and can we provide packages if they're not doing well with the actual synchronous online learning? So there are different ways that we can try to support these students, but uh, it's so critical that we're doing this right now. This has been a long haul, and uh, I know many are struggling. We're going to talk about this later on in the program, but uh, I just wanted to get your read on this too. Uh, obviously, you, you chair of the Board of Education, you're concerned about the impact this is having on students, and, and that's bang on. I mean, that's that's got to be the focus. But this is also putting a great deal of stress on parents, uh, some who've had to stay home, especially if their children are younger, uh, to be able to monitor and, in, in some cases, assist in situations like this. Uh, and I'm not hearing the province offering too much in the way of assistance for them. I mean, this, this has put a lot more burden on, on boards of education, certainly on teachers, but even in the family setting and the home environment right now, too. Absolutely, and and I should just mention that we are um, offering some workshops this week for parents. Uh, we want to recognize um, that it is Mental Health Awareness Week, and so I would encourage parents who are having a, a difficult time to check our website, hwdsb.on.ca, because there's a, a workshop um, for parents on helping your anxious child, um, emotional coaching, and there's some other workshops for secondary students and staff as well. But um, you're right. like. How, how can we support families in this time? I know in particular when families have younger students, it's really hard for a grade two student to engage in online learning without supervision. And that supervision needs to come from the parent when they're at home. Um, and so even parents who are able to work at home are struggling with that. Um, and they're struggling with what level of engagement is necessary. Do they have to be online all day? Because we know that we've been directed by the ministry to have a specific amount of synchronous online time. Um, and, and I think it's so important and what we've done is look to provide flexibility wherever possible. So if, if it means that your child isn't going to be online for the full day, but there's some learning activities they can do, that needs to be okay right now. And when we need to be flexible. I, I don't think they're going to do this a, a whole hog. I'm not going to go into this 100%, but I, I want to harken back to a conversation you and I had uh, some months ago about online learning. And at that time, this was pre-pandemic, there was some conversation uh, and actually a proposal from the, the education ministry to have more online courses. And, and um, I know many people in the teachers' unions, but also a, a number of parent groups, uh, pushed back on that simply because they said, look, we need 
that classroom environment. We need teachers. We need that face-to-face. And, and the government seemed to back down from that, notwithstanding the fact that their, their pensions seem to be more online courses, which, of course, would mean less teachers and probably you know a less expensive way of, of educating our children. Uh, are you concerned that they may look at as, as this? And I, I'm a lot more cynical than you are, Don, but I'm going to ask this. Uh, are you concerned that they may be moving in this direction now and figure the pandemic is an opportunity for them to introduce this? It's certainly, anytime we have disruption, it's a time to introduce change. Uh, and, and that's an opportunity I think that we are seeing the ministries exploring. Right now we are hearing that uh, as they promised grade or secondary students will have to have two online courses, um, they have indicated that for students who have worked in remote during this last year, that that can count as one of their online courses, but they're still required to have another online course to graduate from secondary school. Now, they've also introduced um, exemptions, so you can request an exemption. Uh, that is an additional step that families would have to take. And I know that as, as we're looking at what might be appropriate online, what, what isn't ideal online, um, there are some, some benefits perhaps to having online offerings that, that broaden the courses students can access. But as you mentioned, there, there's also challenges when we do that. Um, it also can limit the offerings that we have in a physical school because we have less students taking those physical courses. So there's a bit of a, a domino effect uh, that we need to be aware of when we're introducing online courses and if we're increasing the amount that that's happening. Um, and again, I think we need to be learning from the experience this year. Some students have, have done well and have, can excel, but those are often students who have the means to be online. They have a space where they can engage online. They have supports at home. They may have parents who have post-secondary education and can support them with math or science, um, some of the more complex subjects. That's different um, for other families that may not have the, the luxury of having a private space to engage in online learning. So we need to be mindful um, where that may create further gaps between different students based on their situation. They also talked about, uh, very quickly, uh, about money for infrastructure, too, $288 million for school boards and third parties. Uh, and what they're talking about here is, is addressing some of the infrastructure problems. Uh, you've got a lot of old buildings in the Hamilton system right now. Uh, can you tap into that money, or do you give them a wish list and here's what we need fixed, or do you just have to see what kind of money is going to be available? Uh, we are working through what the budget announcement means for our board and, and what funding will come to us. We've had a really um, important capital priorities plan, and um, we, we've had a, a cycle of renewal that we've been doing with our schools, because you're right, we do have a number of older buildings. One of the things we're waiting on right now for some of those older buildings is to do an accommodation review, and that's been on pause since before this government came into power. We are still waiting to figure out what would the process be, because they need to release guidelines for that. And for some of our areas where we do have some some aging infrastructure, we don't want to necessarily invest a lot of money fixing up a school that we may not need in our system, right? And accommodation mm -hmm. reviews are where we look at what is our population of students, how many schools do we need in an area, and that's where sometimes we do have school closures. Um, so it would be helpful if we could start working through those accommodation reviews in areas where it hasn't happened. Uh, the West and East Mountain are two examples. And Again, we do appreciate the renewal funding that they've committed to. There's now an opportunity to ask for capital funding where we put our priorities forward, um, and we're hopeful that we'll be successful with some of that funding. But it's important that we're continually working to renew our buildings and our system.
And, and very quickly, I know this is not your call, but obviously it's going to have an impact on you. I get the sense of deja vu of the conversation you and I had about a year ago uh, about whether or not we're going to go back to school and finish off the school year. I, I know that you know the lockdown is supposed to be ending uh, you know, in another couple of days, actually, another week or so, I guess. They're going to make a re-evaluation of what's going on. But the numbers are down, but they're not down significantly right now. Uh, what's your best guess right now? Are, are the kids going to be able to finish the school year, or are we going to be in the same situation as last year? We've had no signal at this point if students will be going back. I'm hopeful that we can get them back for the end of the school year. I'm hopeful, but we know that hospitalizations are really that measure that they're looking at right now. And so even mm -hmm. if cases go down in the community, we need to see those hospitalization numbers go down before I think there will be any opportunity to go back in person. Well, we'll see what the minister has to say about that and, of course, the medical officer who's going to weigh in on that as well. Don, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking some time with us today. Thank you, Bill. Don Danko, the chair of the Hamilton Board of Education. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's been a long, long time. We're into to May now, of course. Uh, this is May the 5th. And, you know, when, when the lockdown started, well, last March for, for many of us anyway, we were anticipating four, five, six weeks maybe max, and then things would get back to some sense of normal. Well, it's going on and on and on, and it's, it's having an impact on a lot of people, as we were talking about in the last hour. It's certainly done a number on our mental health, that's for sure. A new poll suggesting that as this drags on, uh, people aren't really coping any better. In fact, they seem to be feeling a lot worse. Global Sandy Salerno tells us about it. This is the third round of polling the Association's Ontario branch has done since the pandemic began. It suggests only 35% of residents consider their mental health to be very good or excellent, and that's down from 52% back in May. CEO Camille Quenville says the numbers are shocking. The numbers are alarming. It's very worrying to see the trend lines on the mental health of Ontarians decreasing. Uh, as significantly as they have since our last poll. The percentage of those who reported high stress levels and anxiety has also increased from the summer, and nearly 60% of those asked say they're feeling lonelier since the pandemic began, with 47% saying they wish they had someone to talk to. Sandy Salerno, Global News. Well, as you might anticipate, this is not just an Ontario problem. Uh, this is going right across the country. And our good friends at uh, Ipsos uh, Public Affairs have done some polling on this, too, and uh, mirroring some of the concerns that Sandy Salerno just talked to us about, too. Jennifer McLeod Macy is the vice president at Ipsos Public Affairs, joining us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Jennifer, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for the time today. Uh, rather revealing survey and the numbers here that uh, we're, we're having some problems coping with, uh, with what's going on in our lives these days, aren't we? Yeah, it's very alarming. One in two Canadians would be considered at a high mental health risk, according to our index. You know, when because yeah, you guys have been tracking this for not just the, recently, but I mean for the longest time as this has gone on, uh, we seem to have a higher percentage than than other countries in other parts of the world too. I'm I'm always, I'm, I'm concerned about that. I'm wondering what's different here. Well, you know, we have been tracking it for a long time. It's it's hard to comment and and make those comparisons unless you're looking at the exact same figures, but. Yeah. Our figures are alarming, and they're alarming across uh, across the country. Uh, and, and the numbers, of course, are increasing. As you say, the number of people that are being adversely affected. If there's a silver lining to this, though, and I want to talk about this in, in greater detail, uh, those that said, yeah, this is having an impact, a negative impact on us, uh, we seem to be more willing to, to talk about this and to seek help or at least you know, bounce our ideas off somebody else. Absolutely. We've uh, seen this number steadily increase since I've been tracking it in uh, since 2015. 
We had a big jump between 2016 and 2017, and now another big jump since 2018. And the silver lining here, I think, might be coming from the pandemic. The, you know, we've talked a lot about checking in on our loved ones, um, being more empathetic towards each other as as we're going through these tough times. That's kind of opened up the discussion about mental health that we might not have been having before. And really talking about it is the best way to help reduce the stigma so that people can seek help. I, I'm wondering if, if, if this is having an impact to the point where we are starting to reach out more, if it's just more people being more candid with you, uh, because there is a slight increase in the number of people that are saying, yeah, I'm reaching out now. Yeah, there is. We have 44% of Canadians say they're talking about uh, their mental health issues or concerns with their friends and family. 30% who are talking about it with a healthcare provider. Um, we've got a big jump in people who are talking about it online at 19% now. And um, I think this is, you know, a result of we're doing a lot more online now and, and getting that discussion out there. As this continues and as the numbers continue to be troublesome in situations like this, uh, what, are, what, what about resources here, Jennifer? I mean, for people that want to talk about this and want to get some professional advice or some professional help on this, uh, are, are the resources there for them? Well, you know, I can, I can only comment on the polling, but from yeah. from what I understand, the resources are still lacking. We could always do with more resources as these numbers continue to climb up. We need to make sure that there are the resources for everyone who is ready to talk. What about demographics? That's always intriguing when you start looking at national numbers like this, about what age groups are being impacted and how they're being impacted. What did you find? Yeah, we have an interesting trend line that goes down with age, meaning that those in the younger generations, think about your Gen Z, your millennials, they're much more likely to be at risk. We've got three out of four in this group here. goes down to one and two among the Gen X, and then steadily declines from there among for baby boomers and silent generations. So uh, I, I guess obviously the, the greater the impact this is going to have, I guess, you know, we get into some of those demographics that are being impacted more than others. I mean, those are obviously people that are in looking at employment situations and other things like this. So it's, it's I guess, the cumulative effect of what's going on these days. It's probably having a, a, a real uh, pressure on them, I think. Absolutely. We have a strong relationship also with income. So the lower mm -hmm. income um, households are more likely to be at risk. I, there's an interesting stat that always stuck with me uh, about the, the, the Children's Helpline, of course, which has been in play for many, many times now, about a 400% increase in the usage of the, the, the Children's Helpline uh, that, uh, that has been tracked, and I guess that number is actually getting even larger as, the, as this drags on, which I think is pretty indicative of the fact that this is having an impact on everybody. I mean, we may not even think that it's having an impact on, on our kids, but, uh, but clearly they're, they're being uh, impacted by this, and they're feeling the pressure too in, in their own way. Absolutely. I've done work with Children's Mental Health Ontario, and uh, the children are, really are suffering. We don't have full numbers to discuss with you here today, but I have done some since the pandemic started, and it's, it's dire. To, to a tragic end sometimes, too, and I'm glad you brought this up as, as part of the questionnaire, about the people that, well, to use a phrase, I guess are almost at the end of their rope and have seriously considered suicide or self-harm. Those numbers are, are troubling as well. Yeah, they are. We have 9% who say they have considered this several times over the past year, and another 13% who have considered it at least once. When you put that together, that's one in four Canadians.
And, and we're seeing that, of course, manifest itself with some terrible situations about uh, people that are in frustrating situations. And, and we've heard those stories, too, uh, from mental health professionals that, that they don't have the resources uh, to be able to handle an awful lot of the people that may be seeking help like this. Uh, but it's interesting that even though that, that seems to be a fact that's out there someplace, a lot of folks are trying to reach out right now uh, simply because they're having trouble coping with this. Uh, I guess one of the problems here, and I don't know if you heard this in your in your polling, though, uh, Jennifer, is, is you know the fact that there may not be a light at the end of the tunnel for a while right now and only exacerbates the situation, I would think. Yeah, you know, and I think that's why it's important that we have these discussions and continue to get people talking about it because the more you talk about it, the, the more likely you are to be able to get some help. You've been tracking this, as you mentioned, for quite some time. How do you see this progressing? I mean, 10 years ago, if, if we were to do a survey like this, uh, most people would not be honest. that There's a stigma about dealing with mental health. There's a stigma about admitting that, that maybe you need help, some help, you need somebody to talk to. We seem to be changing, aren't we? Yeah, I, I do think that stigma is starting to go away. I don't think it's completely gone yet, though. And, um, you know, I think it will it will be there for some time. And, you know, some people ask me, well, is it just that the incidence of mental health issues has increased because we're talking about it more? And, you know, that might be, but, you know, it, it's there. Regardless, it's there and we need to do something about it. Well, and I know that there's a lot of discussion. I mean, not just through the polling that's going on, but as this has gone on and the pandemic has gone on. And, and you're right. I think there's an awareness. And, and oftentimes, I guess, and we've talked about this with other mental health professionals as well, uh, the fact that you'll have high-profile people that will actually admit that, hey, I've got a problem here. And, and it, it, it probably gives us a start to say, wow, I mean, that, that, they make more money than I do. They're in higher you know, standing in society. And even they have mental health issues. So I guess it's okay for me to talk about it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for many people, they suffer for physiological reasons, not necessarily environmental reasons. And uh, that really points that out and says, hey, you're not alone. You can get help. So the more people who speak out, the better. Uh, and, and that's been ongoing, and I know there are a number of agencies that uh, that have tried to do that and to try to, to, to offer people, the, you know, that opportunity to, to, to listen and to talk about this. And governments are actually spending some time and, some, thankfully, some money on, on resources uh, for this sort of thing as well. What's the, what's the territorial breakdown like? What parts of the country are, are impacted more than others in this? Oh, yeah, we have a huge spike in Alberta right now, actually, which is uh, quite alarming. 60% would be considered at, at uh, high risk. It's also high in Atlantic Canada and in Ontario, um, both of those at around 58% and 52% respectively. Which is interesting, uh, Manitoba and Ontario especially, because they seem to, the provinces, that the two provinces anyway, that seem to be having more trouble in, than others in dealing with the pandemic. And we've seen that manifest itself with a number of new cases and, and hospitalizations. Uh, and even, as you mentioned, the maritime provinces, Atlantic Canada, uh, they seem to be okay, but the last couple of weeks have been rather problematic for them. So it's not surprising to see a spike. I guess uh, the greater the impact the pandemic is having, the higher the number of people that are, are basically admitting that they're getting stressed out. Absolutely. I think it's safe to assume a correlation there. How do you see this going? I mean, you, as, as you've studied this over the last little while, Jennifer, there's, there's a trend here, as you mentioned, uh, and it's, it's rather troubling to see the way the numbers are right now. Are, are we heading towards a crisis situation or are we already in one? <laughs> I think we're already in one, and I don't think it's going to get better anytime soon. I think, you know, as much as we might hope to get back to normal in the next couple of months, the pandemic is going to be with us for a long time. So we're going to have to continue to keep an eye on this and really address the issue because it's not going to go away overnight. 
Well, and as we've talked about, uh, you know, even when we reach that point of vaccination where, uh, you know, the medical professionals are telling us, okay, it's probably okay to open up again. We can probably go to ball games or to movies again, things of this nature. Uh, you can't just flick a switch and say, okay, I'm healthy again now. I mean, this has an impact on you, and it's, 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 it's one thing to be in a situation like that. It's quite another to try to, to get yourself back into a, a quote-unquote normal situation. So there's, there's, there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of time that's going to have to be taken to, to make sure that people get back on their feet. Exactly. So it's going to be fascinating to see this. It's always great to get the read on what's happening nationally. And the more we talk about this, and I know you guys have talked about this at Ipsos too, which is one of the reasons why the polling, I think, is so important, is because it puts the issue back on the front burner and encourages people to open up and talk about something like this. Otherwise, they might think that you're, you know, because I've heard this so many times, and I'm sure you saw this reflected in the polling, the folks that you talk to. Oftentimes, when you find yourself in a circumstance like this, you tend to think, well, I'm the only one that's impacted this way everybody else seems to be okay yeah you know we had people who said they were really feeling hopeless and i think that's an important word hopeless half of them are feeling hopeless at least once in the past year um for several weeks at a time which is a serious thing and i think that hopelessness really gets at that feeling of alone um i i don't know what to do nobody else could feel as bad as i am Nobody else can understand how can they help me. And it's important that, you know, they don't feel alone. They don't feel that hopelessness. There's another problem with this as well, and it's the manifestation of this into physical problems too. I mean, if you're mentally stressed out, as you say, in, in, in over long periods of time like this, it has an impact on your body. I mean, you know, there's a whole lot of, of, of you know, sidebar issues to this. You're probably not sleeping as much. Uh, you're probably not eating well, a number of different things like this. So it can really cause a spiraling effect in the wrong direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for many people, that's when they first notice it. You know, we spoke before about the higher incidence of mental health issues among young adults. And, you know, some people say, well, maybe it's because the older generations don't talk about it as much. Well, they might not recognize it as a mental health issue until it turns itself into a physical health issue. And, and, yeah, we've talked about things like substance abuse and everything else. In other words, people will try to deal with this in different ways. But uh, the best advice and the best takeaway, I guess, uh, is look at, t- talk to somebody and get some help. Uh, you know, self-medication and things of this nature is only going to make a bad situation worse. And, and I know people are, are concerned about that. Or, or you, you've put on a few pounds or, you know, during the pandemic because you're eating differently and things of this nature, which only adds to the frustration and the stress level, doesn't it? Yeah, it does for sure. Uh, we're going to get out of sweatpants eventually, and we're going to have to uh, deal with that sort of thing. Uh, always great to get the the, uh, the the readout here from the folks at Ipsos and get an idea as to where we are as a country and how we're handling this. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much, first of all, for the great work that you've done on this, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me. Jennifer McLeod Macy, Vice President of Ipsos Public Affairs. Uh, this is, as we talked about, Mental Health Month in, in the month of May, and uh, very timely, obviously, because of some of the issues that we're dealing with. And we've talked about some of them on the program, how it's affecting the education system and students and teachers uh, within that education system. And, and by the way, the uh, the frontline workers in the schools as well, uh, the, the folks that are doing the cleanup and the maintenance on the schools. I mean, everybody is, is trying to deal with this in their own way. And it's very, very difficult sometimes to talk about this, especially uh, since an awful lot of us are working from home now and you don't have that social interaction that you would ordinarily have in the workplace uh, to bounce ideas off or to talk about this or hey i'm having a rough day 
you know, if, if you or your significant other is, are the only ones in the house and maybe you don't even have a significant other, it's, it's pretty difficult to be able to reach out and do that. You need a sounding board an awful lot of the time and you need somebody to bounce ideas off and, and basically to share your feelings and emotions with. And uh, that's very, very difficult. And if you're in a circumstance like that, uh, as we've talked about with many of the experts, uh, reach out to somebody. Uh, there are agencies, there are people that can help uh, and find a friend or do whatever you can to talk about this and, and make sure that uh, you're dealing with the feelings and don't just bottle it up because it's never a good thing. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.